And now I'm handing over to Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joanne. Thanks everyone for being here. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. This is a Design for Living Big Book meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. My name is Chris W and I am a compulsive eater and your chairperson for today. To open the meeting, let us have a moment of quiet meditation followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. We start the meeting by remembering our common purpose to extend the heart and hand of the OA Fellowship to those who still suffer. Let us be mindful of OA's unity with diversity policy, which respects our differences yet unites us in the solution to our common problem. Whatever problem you may have with food, you are welcome at this meeting. Today, we are delighted to have Torna from uh, Washington joining us to share her experience, strength and hope focused on the topic of the family afterward. Thank you, Torna. Hi, I'm Torna. I'm a compulsive overeater. Actually, I call myself a recovering ABC, anorexic, bulimic, compulsive overeater. The A is a two-point font. The B for bulimic is a 10-point font, and the C for compulsive overeater is a 1,000-point font. So that'll give you an idea of the magnitude <laughs> of the uh, compulsive overeating compared to the other aspects of my disease. So I'm going to talk about, kind of get, tell my story, and then I'm going to weave in some, some things about the chapter in the big book. So. Um, Let's see, first I wanna start with abstinence is the most important thing in my life without exception. If I don't have my sobriety with the food, I'm in deep trouble. So um, how I, I've been in OA a little over 35 years and I have roughly 34 years of abstinence from, from bulimia. And in November I had 31 years of abstinence from compulsive overeating. I came into OA very, very thin after having lost a bunch of weight in a commercial weight loss program and then got into the bulimia. Um, but, you know, my history, let's, let's kind of back up my history is, you know, I'm, I would say I'm probably 50 pounds less than my top weight. And so, but my, my life has been one of 35, 40 pound weight swings up and down, up and down, up and down. So, um, how I got to OA, you know, growing up, small farming community in Eastern Washington State, you know, food is love, uh, family reunions, potlucks, you know, all that, you know, food is love, you know, pretty much, um, you know, it was a staunch German farming community, very conservative, very, um, very tiny. I, the town of 1,800 people, my parents are teachers. Therefore, I was, un, I was in a fishbowl under the magnifying glass. I couldn't do anything naughty if I even thought about it. I was busted before I tried. In our family, um, you know, you kept a positive attitude. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't, you don't complain. And God forbid you use the B word, which is bored. You know, if something bad happened, you, you just kind of kept it to yourself. You know, negative emotions were kind of kept tamped down. Grief was kept tamped down. 
you know, so I, I had come from a good long background of, of keeping emotions under wraps. Um, when I was in high school, probably what, one of the things that started, two things started my, my disease. One was one of my cats that I was very close to uh, was electrocuted after com coming down from a power pole and I saw it and it just, she was like my, my, my everything. She was my confidant, she slept with me every night. I was beyond devastated. I even tear up still now, like what, 50 years later. Um, it really, but you know, grieving for it was not allowed. Um, so I, I kept it down. You know, then I got into my first relationship and uh, the guy I was dating was in college and, um, and he wasn't what you call faithful at all, but he thought it was important to be honest so he would tell me about his escapades, you know, but I didn't talk to my mom about it because she would have said, dump this guy. Instead, I thought it was me. It was my, you know, I was, you know, I was this innocent virgin. He was the first, he's the first guy I ever kissed and all that good stuff. And uh, so I thought it must be something wrong with me. So between my cat and this first boyfriend and uh, a surgery where I, on my ovaries, where I had some hormonal issues this this tri this triad of you know the Bermuda Triangle of compulsive overeating for Tom, and I started emotionally eating, and and I didn't know it, but my weight would go up and down thirty pounds. Um, so, graduated from high school, I was I was also not your, um, you know I was not your typical kid. I was you know in I grew up in a time where, you know women were you know maybe they came became teachers or nurses or you know, they got married to the local farm kid. I was into math and science and I, that, that was my thing. And I was especially excited about it because it was tough for many people, but it wasn't for me. Needless to say, in a community where being a cheerleader or an athlete was paramount, I was just the square peg that could not fit into the round hole. Um, you know, which of course just fed into the eating. My mom used to, um, my parents, like I said, were teachers. They would get they would get um, tons of sweets baked for them every Christmas by all, both of their classrooms. So, you know, 30, 25, 30 kids per class, they get 25, 30 plates of something, both parents. So we've got 70 plates or so, or 50 to 70 plates of goodie treats. And of course, you know, us kids, we didn't have a lot of money. This would, we never got goodie treats like this. And so we wanted to inhale them. My mom would wrap the, the goodie treats in butcher paper and label it deer liver and store them in the deep freeze, thinking it would keep us from getting into them. Wrong. I figured it out. <laughs> I would go in and sneak these things. So yeah, that's kind of some of my early history with food. Got through college, went through college, married my college sweetheart. Um, you know, again, I get close and personal relationships with the vending machines. You know, hostess and I had a thing going. And, um, you know, my weight would, you know, I'd get in a relationship, the weight would go up. I didn't know anything about setting boundaries. I didn't, that was a, something that was a tool that was not in my toolbox given to me by my parents. Setting boundaries, not there. Um, you know, and so then break up with a person, the weight would drop down 35 pounds. Get in another relationship, the weight would go up 35 pounds. And, you know, having, having nasty red stretch marks on my thighs and my hips and my near my waist from age, say, 15 and up was just, was really embarrassing. But that's, that was one of the things about the disease is because I gained weight so rapidly, the skin tore and I had these horrible angry stretch marks. So um, after graduating from college, 
I, you know, married my uh, college sweetheart. And it was, that is when the, um, you know, I kind of had a little bit about of kind of anorexic behavior in high school, but it was when I got married to my college sweetheart during the honeymoon when he started just raging at me and I'd never experienced this before in my life. And I'm like, whoa, what just happened? <clears throat> and, you know, and I was just, it was like getting, you know, hit with the two by four, not knowing anything was coming. Um, and that is, um, and I thought, well, you know, not knowing about boundaries, I thought it's my problem. I must've done something to deserve this. And so, you know, again, the emotional eating and then, and then, you know, I lose weight through commercial weight loss program. And cause I thought the problem was I had fat thighs. Um, you know, the problem was he was abusive and I didn't know how to set boundaries, but I didn't know this. I didn't understand this. And so I, um, you know, started the, the exercise and the laxative abuse bulimia off and on. I, how I got into OA. So that's a lot about how it was like, and I'm sorry, that took a little bit of a time there. So that's kind of, you know, um, what got me into OA. I mentioned wanting to eat an entire circular unit people get for their, for their birthdays to a friend of mine and she said well you know I go to Overeaters Anonymous and you know if you ever want to come with me I'd be happy to you know take you with me oh I don't need that you know I, I don't have a problem with food you know I use this commercial weight loss program blah 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 but the seed was planted then another friend of mine said Gail you know she said Tana I, I want to go to this Overeaters Anonymous meeting but I don't want to go alone would you go with me and being a good flaming codependent with both afterburners going I went to my first meeting with Gail it was a meeting uh, at the El Camino Hospital in Mountain View, California. It was a speaker. It was a speaker meeting. It was a great meeting. I go in. I didn't know what to expect. We're sitting kind of near the front part of the, the room. They ask us to introduce ourselves. And I'm like, I'm Tana. I'm, I'm Tana. Yeah. Hi, Tana. And I thought, oh, F-bomb. These people are weird. This is a cult. You know, everybody's saying hi to people. And I thought, this is really strange. You know, the first meeting, I thought, you know, people would share these hor horrific stories and everyone would clap and laugh. And I thought, what is wrong with you people? Skeletons are meant to be kept in the closet. You don't air your dirty laundry with everyone because that's how I grew up thinking. And, and here everybody was airing these things and people were laughing and clapping. So I thought you guys were really weird. Um, went back the next week because Gail needed to have a friend come with her. And again, I thought, oh, this is weird. You know, let's let's get out of here as soon as possible so I don't have to talk to anybody. Somebody might from work might recognize me and they would, I would have the big loser on my forehead. You know, um, it was all about me and how people might perceive me. Um, everybody else was concerned about their own thighs. They really didn't care about me, but you know, I didn't know this. Um, so by the third meeting, it was like, okay, sign me up. I found my lost tribe. And so for more than 35 years, I've been coming back ever since with no breaks. I've always kept coming back. It took me four years to get sober with the food. I was in and out of relapse, but I got within the first couple of months, I got sober from the anorexic bulimic type behavior. So, um, so that's been, go so I've been, I guess, sober from that for about 35 years now, um, just maybe a couple of weeks shy of 35 years. It took me four years to get sober with the food. It was hard. Um, it was really hard. You know, they say there's no one too dumb for program to get it, to get the steps. There's certainly people who are too smart. Being a, you know, I got my degree in a scientific field and I want to know the why behind everything. I wanted to know, you know, I want to know, I want explanations. We want charts and graphs. We want published papers, peer reviewed. You know, that just doesn't exist. And so, you know, I of course was, a, I was a member of the debate society. 
I got a, I got a sponsor within the first month of me being there, a, a food sponsor. And then I got, you know, when I still was struggling with food, she suggested I get a step sponsor. So I had a food and a step sponsor. And this was really a good thing because, man, I burned out sponsors. I was really messed up. I was given the gift of um, desperation. As, as a friend of mine in, I called him Hallelujah Hugo, he would say, Tana, when you are willing to push a peanut down the El Camino Real with your nose during rush hour traffic, you are willing to take certain steps to recover from compulsive overeating. Are you ready? You know, and it's like, I got to that point after about four years of, I mean, I worked so hard. My sponsor would say, jump. I'd say, give me a vector, magnitude and direction. How high and in what direction? How far do you want me to walk on these hot coals? You know, I mean, I would just do it because I was desperate. And I thought, if I, if I can't get it, I, I at least have proof that it doesn't work. <laughs> you know? So at any rate, so I would, you know, I worked the steps. I did the steps. When my sponsor said, make two phone calls a day, I made two phone calls a day. For eight years, I called my food in every day, um, except for when I was backpacking and then I couldn't, then I had to write it down. Um, you know, this is, you know, I gave service. I was, I've always been a person to give service and to volunteer because that's just important. It was that kind of one of the family values I was raised with. So I would go to intergroup and I would be the intergroup rep or I would do, uh, I do everything but the treasurer at meetings because me and me and treasurer just, I've done it before, but it's not a good combination. There's many other ways I can give service than to be treasurer. So that is, it took me four years to get sober with the food. I, I reached a crisis level where um, I got in an argument after a meeting with one of my best friends in program and I really had to set a boundary and um, letting go of this, you know, although I'm still friends with this person, but letting go of the addictive nature of the friendship was key. And also part of that key was really listening to my sponsor when she said, you've got to let go of the control. Because I was, my first four years of program, I was trying to control my food. I do weigh and measure or I do certain, you know, it was kind of like um, my, my absence was still a lot like a diet plan. And I'd have one P too many and the two most dangerous words in my vocabulary would happen. Effort. And once that, once I said that, I was off to the races, bags, boxes, and pounds. And that's not a good place to be. And then the, would come the weight gain. So at any rate, that... Um, but when she, she said to me, Tana, you know, you've been doing this weigh and measure thing. And, you know, maybe this is not the best for you because you're such a flaming perfectionist anyway. Um, how about three meals a day, three snacks, one day at a time? The 301 plan. And I'm like, I can't do that. I'm hypoglycemic. She goes, fine. The 331 plan, three meals a day, three snacks, one day at a time, no binge foods. But I might gain weight. Tana, your weight is none of your business. That is God's business. You just get sober with the food. God will take care of the rest. And so that's what started my abstinence, which is basically what I have today, roughly three meals a day, three snacks, one day at a time. Sometimes I don't have the three snacks. Um, the, the thing that is really important is I don't binge, I don't purge, and I don't eat my red light foods no matter what, period. Uh, you know, so essentially, so, you know, I, I talk about food sobriety in terms of red light foods, yellow light foods, and green light foods. Red light foods are recreational sugar. Yellow light foods are things like maybe uh, tortilla chips. You know, I don't really want to have them around the house. I can have them at a restaurant in my, but they're kind of things that can be a little bit loosey-goosey if I'm really clean with my food. I can have a few yellow light foods. 
Um, green light foods are things like lima beans, fish, um, carrots, you know, jalapenos, things that generally I wouldn't binge on. So, so pretty much I don't do, you know, my food sobriety is I do not do red light foods or red light behaviors, period, no matter what. And having that black and white, or maybe it's red and white, you know, a red and something else definition of my, of my food sobriety makes it really easy to me, for me to be stay sober with the food because there's no, um, you know, there's certain things I just don't do, period. It's like an alcoholic just doesn't drink. Okay, so I've talked about um, how I got to OA, um, you know, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that I've been through in program. So I got sober with the food. I'm doing a lot of service. I've always done service. Um, you know, one of the things I, I want to talk about briefly is some of the challenges I've gone through. You know, I started in the Bay Area. I moved to Colorado. I lived there for 10 years. Then I moved back home to Washington. And in the marriage, it was very difficult. I was married for 18 years. Um, you know, we went through 13 years of marriage counseling. I was in program for probably 13 years when I finally just get, said, I'm done. Um, you know, I learned things I learned in program were things like boundaries, how to, how to detect when someone is using you or someone is abusing you, because I didn't know I could say no, no is a complete sentence. If I, you know, if someone asked me to do something and I don't know, I, I need space to think about it. I can say, let me think about it and I'll get back to you. I used to say yes to everything. Um, you know, when boundaries was, was such an important tool, if I don't exercise boundaries, I get in all sorts of trouble. Um, you know, it's it's relationships, it's the relationships and my response to things that happen, which give me trouble with food, especially before program. So, you know, problems in relationships made me hungry. Stress before a test really made me hungry. Um, you know, bad things happening in a relationship, like an argument or whatever, because I didn't know how to handle argument. I never grew up in a family where we argued. That made me hungry. So learning how to have handle conflict in a healthy manner has been critical for my recovery. And this I got through working with sponsors and doing service in OA because in OA, I get to practice things like healthy boundaries. You know, I get to, and I get to walk with people who are on the same spiritual path. And so when I give service and there's, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, disagreement or, or, you know, people arguing a little bit, you know, in a pleasant way, um, I get to learn how to handle that and how to react appropriately, not take it on like it's my fault, and also not allow myself to be walked on. And I do this with the help of a sponsor. I've had the same sponsor for about 31 years now. She's amazing. Even though she's still in California, I've, I've kept the same sponsor. So, um, you know, the, you know, so I got sober in, with the food before I before I uh, had a family, because I was never going to have kids, um, you know, and so, you know, when it talks about, you know, to uh, the members of, you know, the family afterwards, I, I read this chapter and, you know, really the, what it impacted was my, my family of origin, who's back in Washington State, and my husband at that time, who was, um, you know, who saw me through my gaining my food sobriety, um, you know, so, you know, it talks about in the book, you know, that we don't, you know, we don't wrap the, the alcoholic or the compulsive overeater in, you know, in a comfortable soft blanket. Um, you know, the, the more the alcoholic expects others to concede to him or her, the more resentful they become. 
And so there's some things I had to do. I had to ask my then husband to keep his his sugar retreats at the office. I couldn't have him in the house for at least a, for at least a good year or two. It was just too hard. Um, but I try not to be too, you know, I try not to be too pushy, but there's some things I had to ask. Um, you know, another thing it talks about on page 123 of the version of the big book I have, it takes time to clear away the wreckage of the past. I'm lucky. I got into program in my late twenties. I didn't have a lot of wreckage. If I would have gone in, gotten in, um, in my forties or fifties, I would have had a shit ton of wreckage to deal with. Um, you know, one of the things that also helped me is Early in my recovery, I think it was in, in OA for two years when I gave up drinking alcohol. There were a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons is I could not stay sober with the food if I drank. Because if I drank or if I smoked weed, which I gave up, you know, five years before program, you know, it's, I would get into the food. And so I had to give up behaviors that got me into the food and mind altering substances got me into the food. So no alcohol, and pot, period. Um, you know, it, it does take time. People don't understand when you change. My family didn't get it. It's like, you know, it's, they, they, they expected, you know, like a, the family system is like a mobile. And if you tap one of the, the elements of the mobile, everything starts kind of spinning around and it wants to be at like an equilibrium. And so I was shaking the mobile by being in recovery and telling my family members, of my family that I thought they ought to consider AA. No, <laughs> needless to say, I was not, I was, uh, I was not leading by example. I was, you ought to do this. Not really recommended in program. Um, anyway, but, you know, I was, I was not as much fun with some of my friends, you know, who used to party and I wasn't partying anymore. I still hung out with them, but I wasn't partying. And since I wasn't partaking, I was kind of a wet blanket. So I would just be the designated driver. I didn't care if they did. Um, it was, the food is more hard for me. Um, he talks about you know, so fortunately, I didn't have to clear away a lot of wreckage of the past. Um, it talks also about burying or, the, or forgetting the skeletons of our past is not recommended in the family. Um, you know, one of the things in program, it talks about in the promises, no, no matter how far down the scale we've come, you know, that experience that we have can be used to benefit others. And so, you know, it's, it's part of it is taking those errors of our past, those and converting them to assets, making amends, like it talks about in steps eight and nine, becoming willing to make amends and then making the amends. Um, you know, in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession we have, the key to of life and happiness for others. So, you know, that's, you know, that talk, that's talked about in the family afterwards. So, you know, I, I don't, you know, I didn't shy away from the skeletons in the past, but I didn't, I didn't, you know, I used it in a program sense. Um, you know, another thing it talks about in the family afterwards is whether the family has a spiritual convictions or not, um, you know, essentially the, they need to examine the principles by which the alcoholic or the compulsive overeater is trying to live. So, you know, I came from a religious, not a religious, but a, a religious family, but not, you know, not kind of a traditional religious family, not, not an extremely religious family. Um, we, we kind of kept that quiet. It's kind of one of those things that was a personal thing. Um, you know, and I didn't talk, you know, my spiritual life is very personal. I don't talk about it much. And part of it's the way I was raised, but I try to live that spirituality. I try to, you know, so you won't hear me talk a lot about God. Um, God speaks to me through 
the members of OA. God speaks to me through other people. God speaks to me through nature, through experience, through maybe it's maybe it's something I hear in a you know in a church sermon or a song. It could be something I experience when hiking in nature, you know. But the the strongest way God speaks to me is through people in these rooms, and and my experience with my higher power is it's more of a my dear friend. I have a dear friend in in Colorado who who's kind of my spiritual sponsor, whether he wants to be or not. I told him, you're out of luck, you're my spiritual sponsor. You've given me a lot of tips, this really helps. If I'm stressed, I'll say, okay, God, get in the car with me. I need to go because I'm gonna mess this up. I need to turn this over to you. Please help me. You know, thy will, not my will be done. And so I've learned that, you know, I talk with God like, you know, like like a brother or sister. And and that works for me. Um, You know, it's, People don't really understand my spirituality. My my very religious sister might think I'm. Oh, this is not quite what the church says, Donna. But you know, and others who are atheists might look at me and go, "That's kind of weird. How can you be a woman of science and math and believe this stuff?" You know, and so that's okay. You know, to each his own. My higher power works for me, and I hear my higher power through you. Now I got to share this story. My sister is a devout, devout Christian. She would be the one who got the burning bush. You know, when they talk about the spiritual experience in the big book, she would get the burning bush and she would understand. If I got the burning bush, I'd have the fire extinguisher out. I'd be reading, does this have the proper numbers on it to put this fire out? And I'd be trying to put it out. And I would have no idea this was something that God was trying to tell me. So, um, so yeah, I've had this slow spiritual awakening as part of my spiritual experience. And um, another thing. It talks about in a family afterwards. Drinking isolates most of us from the outside world or compulsive overeating. The family needs to allow the compulsive overeater or the alcoholic to do AA or OA activities, media events, etc. That's true. You know, at first when I started to go to, to program, my ex would say, Why are you going to these god dang meetings? You're always going to these meetings. You know, eventually after being in program for eight years, he'd say, Tony, you're having a hard day. Maybe you should go to a meeting. So eventually he, he came to learn that if I go to a meeting, I'm in a lot better space. If I'm sober with the food, I'm in a lot better space. If I'm sober with the food and go to a meeting and call my sponsor, we're golden. Add working with others and it is platinum. <laughs> you know? So it's, you know, people eventually get it. One of the things I love is in the family afterwards, it talks about we aren't a glum lot. We insist on enjoying life. You know, that's one of the things I love about OA. It, I've always had a sense of humor. OA has given me a very irreverent, zany sense of humor. It's refined that sense of humor. You know, and one of the things that's taught me is when I'm in a really bad situation, see the humor in it. One of the challenges I had is I had two kids, all three of my kids were in the NICU after being born. The twins were very premature, too much premature. One of them had uh, three intestinal in, intestinal surgeries in the first, what, four months of her life. We didn't know if she was going to make it from day to day. And what one of the intestinal surgeries that had given her an ileostomy, which means take out the, the intestine, attach it to the, the sidewall of the, the body. And she's had this little poop volcano from her small intestine that had catch everything in the bag. That was the goal. And so the doctor was explaining this to me, and she's four days old. No, I think she was a month old by this time. Her first surgery, she was four days old. This is her second surgery. And he talks about this. And I said, well, will she ever get this okay? I mean, is she going to, you know, have to have this the rest of her life? And he goes, well, 
the hope is we'll get to do a, a reversal of this. And I looked at him and I cracked up and I said, well, you know, I guess the, you know, the good news is if she goes, if she has to have this the rest of her life, if she has, if she goes backpacking with me in the woods, she can poop in the bag. She doesn't have to poop by the side of a log and fall over, you know, and get stung by bees on the butt, you know, and I, started, I burst out laughing. He looked at me like, O-M-F-G, this woman is so weird. But, you know, to be able to, to laugh and see humor in, in a situation where my daughter could, may not make it the next day, humor became a way I could release some tension and emotion. And my sense of humor is so weird and it's so much fun. And I love being, you guys make me laugh. See, this is why I keep coming back after all these years, because you make me laugh, um, you know, and I've been sober with the food for many years, but you guys crack me up. Why would I leave when I'm with this group of crazy zany people who make me laugh and keep me sober with the food? So that's kind of an example of, you know, we are not a glum lot. When I got, went to my first meeting and everybody is, is sharing these horrible things that happened to them and everybody's laughing and clapping. The first meeting, I just thought, oh geez, these guys, this is just bizarre. Um, but I began to understand, we don't laugh at each other. We laugh at our experience and the commonality. And that's one of the, it's, it's part of the glue that keeps us together. And I just think it's amazing. Um, let's see, more things from, uh, I, I wrote down little notes. You know, you know, we are sure that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. This is around page 132. You know, I know what God's will is for each and every one of you. Truthfully, I do know. And you're thinking, well, that's pretty, you know, high and mighty of her to say this. God's will is for you to be happy, joyous, and free, and to refrain from compulsive overeating one day at a time, every day. So that's it. That's kind of in a nutshell. It talks also around page, around page 132, we avoid the deliberate manufacturing of misery. And if it comes, we cheerfully capitalize on it as an opportunity to demonstrate our higher power's omnipotence. So as far as the avoiding the deliberate manufacturing of misery, one way that members of the family and myself can, can do this is one of the things that I tend to do is is someone will do things and I'll have a story in my head about this was their intention. That's why they did it. And then I'll dwell on it and then I'll get mad and then I'll just ruminate on it. And so I've, I've, I've created this whole story in my head about my husband's mad about this. And this is the reason why. And, but it's all, I'm manufacturing my own misery here because really if I ask him what's going on, he may say, you know, my stomach hurts today. See what everything I manufactured in my head was just BS. And that kind of stuff is what makes me want to eat. But really, if I just ask a clarifying question, what I thought wasn't what was going on at all. So that's an example of how I can avoid manufacturing, the deliberate manufacturing of misery. And same to the family of the compulsive overeater or the alcoholic. And if, if, if something happens, you know, cheerfully capitalize on, as, as an opportunity to demonstrate higher powers, you know, higher, you know, higher powers will or high, higher powers omnipotence. You know, um, if... So when I run into challenges and what I try to, I, what I try to tell my kids is, you know, my, you know, if life gives you lemon, make lemonade. And if that doesn't work, well then sell the lemonade on the street corner, make a profit. You know, I mean, try to do some, rather than wallowing in it, try to do something positive with it. Another way that I don't, um, another way that I avoid the deliberate manufacturing of misery is, is I try to look at the bright side of things, not in a Pollyanna way, 
because you know my family of origin it was like it was very polyant look at the bright side but there was no guidance on how to look at challenges how do i handle challenges oh we just don't talk about that now that's not healthy that's what makes me want to eat so it's like you know what i can do is i can look when i go into a room if i look for something bad i can find all kinds of faults if i look for the good i can find all kinds of good and how i those glasses that i put on those magic magnifying glasses they talk about and i can't remember which story it is but i think it's in like the 440s roughly around in that area you know the glasses that i put on when i walk into a situation will color my perception of the room if i if i go in with with you know clear glasses and a positive attitude i'm going to be a lot happier with what i see than if i go in with the, the attitude that everybody's out to get me people are people are going to just do me wrong uh, everything's shit, you know, if I put on shit colored glasses, I'm going to see shit. Um, let's see, um, you know, another thing it talks about, and this is after, let's see, um, it's wrong, it's around page 130, 133 in my big book. Do not hesitate to talk to doctors, psychologists, and practitioners. And I really, really, really believe that. In my family, I've got a kid with, you know, I had three kids that were premature. One has autism and ADHD and sensory processing disorder. Another has ADHD and another one has SPDD. That's sassy, sassy pants defiance disorder. I made that up, but it sounds good. Um, you know, one of the things that's amazing is my kids have never seen me eat compulsively. They've never seen me binge. I got, um, I, I maintain my, both my pregnancies sober with the food. And, um, you know, it's, they've never seen me. My, my, I got abstinent before I had children, and that is such a blessing. Um, you know, but we, in my family, you know, it was hard to ask for help because in order to get, for me to get sober with the food, I had to see a counselor, and I also had to see a psychiatrist because I had horrendous, horrendous depression, and I felt so much shame about it, and I tried everything before I went to see a doctor, and basically, it's it's called biology. It's called family genetics. And I've got the genetics where I got to be on antidepressants. Oh well, you know, it's it's thank goodness for modern med medicine. Better living through chemistry, as I say, <laughs> it's there for a reason. Um, but I couldn't stay sober with the food if I was horrendously depressed. You know, bipolar runs in my family as well. By the grace of God, I I you know that that, that bypassed me and went to my brother. Um, I'm so sorry for him. But you know, we, what I learned really important program, which was critical for me is I've got to take, go to a doctor for my physical health, a psychiatrist for my emotional health, a counselor for my, you know, to help me uh, because count, OA is not therapy. OA is practicing the 12 steps, the 12 traditions and the 12 concepts. I need OA. I need therapy for therapy type, type things. The combination is powerful. But first and foremost, I need Overeaters Anonymous. I can't, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a stool, a, a multi-legged stool. And if I yank one of those legs out, I'm in trouble. Um, so, you know, I'm really grateful for this passage in, the, in, the, in the, this chapter of the family afterwards. Do not hesitate to talk to doctors, psychologists, and practitioners. Um, you know, my family, when, when my kids were growing up, they had so many developmental delays. You know, I had, to, I had, to, I had infertility and I had to get pregnant through donor egg. And then have kids that have problems. It's like, what the F, God? You know, why do I have to deal with this? I mean, I, you know, I'm compulsive overeater. I got through that. We, you know, I had to go through infertility. And now I've got kids with special needs. What is the problem here? Why did you do this? I was kind of a little bit irritated with God. But, you know, God gave me the strength to seek out a lot of kinds of therapy for my kids. 
Um, at one point, we were told my oldest daughter would probably be living with us the rest of her life. She's now got a, a, a two-year degree from college, and she's working on her bachelor's. My kid who has SPDD, Sassy Pants Defiance Disorder, she's getting, she's almost got her, her four-year degree. And my, my youngest twin, um, she's, working, uh, she's working on her degree. So to have kids that were so frail at the beginning and through a lot of me going to program, me going to program, me going to program, I would go to program a day, a meeting a day, or first eight years of a program a lot. Um, you know, later on, a, a meeting a week. But it's that program that helped me through all these challenging situations. And, you know, every other parents are sending their kids to baseball camp and gymnastics and, you know, t-ball. And we were going to speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, therapy, therapy. We were the family, the therapy family. But you know what? Between that and the 12 steps, hey, you know, I stayed sober with the food and they're doing well by the grace of God. Let's see. Um, one of the things that absolutely, I was kind of like, holy crap. When they talk about in chapter nine, the family afterwards, sweets may be helpful. Eh, wrong answer. This does not apply to us. <laughs> so yeah, this, uh, you know, so, you know, when it talks about having certain sweets available for quick energy and value at times of fatigue, that does not apply to us. Maybe it applies to the family, not to us compulsive overeaters. Finally, it talks about, you know, um, you know, you know, it talks about how um, sex relations can be fixed, but it may, may take time. So to the family afterwards, it takes time for the alcoholic or the compulsive overeater to recover. It's a journey. It's a spiritual journey. Don't expect miracles and don't badger the compulsive overeater or the alcoholic if they're not perfect right away. Um, you know, the, the alcoholic or the compulsive overeater must live on a spiritual basis, regardless of if the family does. You know, the family should refrain from, from judgment. And the three mottos, um, which are which I love at the end, it talks about first things first, live and let live, and easy does it. You know, first things first, I need to be sober with the food. I need to put my abstinence first. If I'm not abstinent, everything goes to hell. Um, you know, live and let live. What other people think of me is none of my business. How other people live their life is none of my business. And that's really hard because I want to enlighten my husband, especially. Spouses don't like to be enlightened. <laughs> I can tell you that. Neither do kids, neither do grown adult children. Um, and easy does it. For easy does it, it's, you know, one of the things for me is I'm, I'm a compulsive overachiever. You know, we, we compulsive overeaters and alcoholics. A lot of us are rather driven. I am like, when you, when you look up driven in the dictionary, you see my picture. When you look up persistent in the dictionary, you see my picture. I've been like that since I came out of the womb. And, you know, one of the things I try to do is, you know, if something isn't working, you know, it's my, my response is always get a bigger effing hammer. But what I've learned in program is to take a step back easy does it. Live and let live. Ask God, what is your will for me? You know, asking for the power of God's, the, the knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out. That is my prayer. You know, I, I don't pray for myself other than please give me strength to help deal with this. Thy will, not my will be done. It makes praying a heck of a lot easier. Um, you know, I, I want to, um, I know I'm getting closer to, closer to the end, so I, I've got a couple notes here. Um, you know, one of the things is, 
when I first got into program, you know, I saw all the stuff that we had to do and, and it was like kind of overwhelming, but I did it because my sponsor said, you want to get, do you want relief or do you want recovery? Do you want to get sober with the food or do you want to just kind of skate around the edges? And, you know, it's what I've learned is dive in. This is the easier, softer way. It really is. Um, you know, I never left program, even in the first four years when I was in and out of relapse. I don't care if I binge my way to the meeting and binge on the way home. I kept coming back because in when, when I went to the big Saturday meeting in, in, in Santa Clara, San Jose, they read from the, the chapter five, how it works, the preamble, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. That persistence paid off. I thought if I thoroughly followed this path, I, I'm a, it's very rare that I would fail. And I took that to heart. And, um, you know, and I knew I had the, I knew I had the ability to be rigorously honest, like it talks about in chapter five. I worked, I didn't ever leave, no matter how bad it became. Even and when, when times were really good and I was doing great, I still went to at least, I still go to at least a meeting a week. Um, it's usually about three meetings a week right now. I don't have any face-to-face -face meetings where I live, so I have to attend via Zoom. There's occasion that I'll go to another 12-step meeting, our parent, our parent club, as I call it. Um, just so I can go to a face-to-face -face meeting here on, on Whidbey Island. But it's really important for me to hang out with other compulsive overeaters. So one of the things I always want to talk about is service. When I was first in program, people would say, service is slimming. And I'd think, oh, shut up. You know, <laughs> I don't want to hear about this. I, there's no scientific basis for this. So, but what I did find out is when I gave service and when I hung out with other compulsive overeaters and I've given service on the inner group, the region and the world service level, I got to hang out with people who were sober with the food. I got to see how they were doing it. I would go to the meeting, we would go out to lunch afterwards and we would talk about service stuff or we'd talk about whatever. We'd go on a hike afterwards. And I started hanging out with people who were sober with the food and were happy. And I, this, the, how I just rubbed off on me. I started incorporating what they did in their lives into my life. And it made such an amazing transformation for me. So the fellowship is so important. And if you can, if I would say for me, get, going to face-to-face -face meetings, especially my first, say, 15 years of recovery, 20 years of recovery was absolutely critical. Absolutely. Um, you know, if you can't go to a face-to-face -face meeting because of COVID or because of your remote, go to a meeting, a Zoom meeting. It's just important. It is going to meetings no matter what. Um, let's see. Um, one, one of the things, let's see, I want to, I've got a couple notes here. Some things that um, I, I learned, you know, one of the things that's important for me is to have an action plan. So when I'm going into a strict situation, you know, from, from Halloween through, through Valentine's Day, it's called open season on compulsive overeaters. All this food and candy's out there and we are constantly tempted. We're almost to, you know, another month and we'll be out of compulsive overeater open season. Um, but things that I can do to plan ahead, it's, you know, plan of action, one of our tools. I can plan my food. Number one, I can plan my food. Do I need to bring a dish with me to a potluck or can I bring a dish if someone invites me to dinner? Um, do I need to eat ahead of time rather than eating at an event? Can I bring literature in my purse? Um, you know, uh, you know, planning breaks to say the serenity prayer. One of the things um, I put sticky notes all, you know, I'm not so much now, but, but first 12 years of program, I had sticky notes all over the house. 
One was, um, and also at work. At work, I had a Q-tip that I would tape to my computer. Quit taking it personally, Q-tip. So by quit taking it personally, I was avoiding the, manu the deliberate manufacturing of misery that it talks about in this chapter of the big book. It's take a step back, you know, it's not all about me. Don't take it personally. Another one is dare to be average. That was in my bathroom mirror. And if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. And when my sponsor first told me this, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to always do your best. But the thing is, is, you know, a simple memo at work doesn't have to be a Pulitzer Prize winning memo. It can be, hey, this is what happened. These are the action items. So, you know, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Dare to be average. And this was really hard for me, but it got me out of the, the perfectionistic analysis paralysis, which would lead me to food. Um, another one, you know, I put on the refrigerator is more snacks, bigger slacks. I also put two pieces, pamphlets of OA literature on the fridge. One is if God spoke to OA, and the other one is if God takes that first, if, before you take that first compulsive bite. Those were really helpful for me. And so before I got into the fridge, I said, okay, I want to binge, but let me look at this piece of literature. And that helped me a lot. Um, you know, asking myself, am I giving it my all or doing the bare minimum to get by? Usually I give it up my all, unless it's something I really don't want to do, then I kind of do the bare minimum. Um, I send my text step, my 10th step daily to my sponsor. A, what I call it my bowels. A, was I abstinent? E, did I exercise? You know, plan of action. I, what did I do for myself? Did I go to a meeting? Did I read literature? Did I text or call program people? Oh, what did I do for others? Did I make any phone calls? Did I, um, what did I do for another compulsive overeater or just another person in my life? You uh, is what, uh, what uncovered feelings came up? What feelings came up? What did I uncover? These are things that, I, you know, do I need to make an amends about? Do I need to talk to my sponsor about it? You know, I always bring that up. And, you know, when I first did the steps, you know, everything was a big deal. Now, because I've cleaned away a lot of the wreckage of the past, it's kind of like, okay, you, you know, so-and-so really irritated the crap of me at work, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't bitch slap them in the next week and there are no bodies buried in the woods. So it's all good. <laughs> I'm sure if someone saw my, in my 10 steps to my sponsor, they'd probably go, oh my gosh, this woman's weird. And then why is Yahoo? What am I grateful for? You know, yay. You know, what happened? What was that? What was an exciting thing today? Gratitude. It's the same thing as gratitude. 45 so, minutes. Um, We're at 45 great. minutes, Chana. Thank you so much. You know, some other things I want to say real quickly is, um, you know, an easy, an easy prayer for me is very simple. God help me or just help. Step one, I can't do it. Two, God can. Three is I'll let God, I'll turn my will and my life over to the care of God. Um, one of the other things I want to talk about real quickly is abstinence is a muscle. The more you exercise that muscle, the easier it is to stay abstinent. And the recovery bank account. The more I stay abstinent, I'm putting, I'm putting recovery in my recovery bank account. When I give my sponsor my 10 step, I'm putting recovery in my recovery bank account. If I'm going to meetings, if I'm giving service, if I'm doing all these things, I'm putting recovery in my recovery bank about account. So when really horrific things happen to me, you know, divorce, um, you know, kids in the NICU, 
my ex going totally nonlinear on me, um, you know, breaking this last year, I broke my kneecap mountain biking. You know, when those horrible things happen, I've got a big pile of recovery in my recovery bank account that I can draw on. And that helps me stay sober with the food. Um, you know, so I'm just really grateful for that. So any chance I have, I look for opportunities to put that, those recovery coins, so to speak, in my recovery bank account. Breaking my kneecap mountain biking this year, that was not on my list of things to do. I've done all kinds of crazy ass things in my life with outdoor sports, you know, backpacking, peak climbing, caving, whitewater rafting, you know, you name it. What do I do? I'm mountain biking on a simple trail. I'm 20 feet down the trail. I hit a piece of wood. I lose my balance and land. My knee finds the only freaking rock in the whole area. And just smash my kneecap and, you know, of course I'm in the woods. So, you know, I ended up getting to the hospital. I had to have surgery. This was not in my life plans. And let me tell you, this is one of the hardest things I've ever dealt with because I couldn't do anything for about six weeks. No exercise. I couldn't get up and move. I'm very physically active. I'm always doing stuff. I'm, you know, ADHD. I'm very fidgety. I'm very go, 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 go. And I had to sit and have a leg brace on and not do anything. And it was really painful. And this really, really challenged my recovery. But I'm 12, almost 13 months out now. I've stayed sober with the food. Um, I am hiking up to two miles now, which is nothing compared to what I used to be able to do. It's getting better. I still have pain. It's going to get better. It's going to be probably another year before I'm back to normal. But this is, you know, I've got, <clears throat> I had a lot of recovery coins in my recovery bank account texting other people that has been one of the greatest things you know texting other people my neighbor hey i just broke my kneecap can you come and get me you know you know a, a ups driver found me i couldn't get up he carried me to his truck and my bike who carried me to the trailhead who you know it was take you know it's like texting people hey can you help me that is very new behavior compared to before program. Before program, it's like, I would have dragged myself to the trailhead. God forbid I ask for help because, you know, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. When I'm having trouble with food, before I, you know, there's not enough, you know, candy bars on this side of the Cascade Mountains to, um, to satisfy me. One is too many, 10,000 is not enough. If I get into that mood where my thinking gets hinky, text program friend, and then I do better. Um, OA ruins binging for forever. So I hate to tell you folks, once you've been to your first OA meeting, you're binging the rest of your life is ruined. You'll never, ever be able to have a good binge. Another thing I want to say is the road to recovery is paved with many baby steps, lots of baby steps. It is not like, you know, some people like this good friend of mine, she got abstinent the first day of her, or she got stiffed into OA and I'm looking at her like, bitch, you know, <laughs> so irritated me. It took me four years of just slogging through mud and hell. Um, but the road to recovery for me has been paid with many, many baby steps. If I can just do the next right indicated thing, things work out. Ask God, what is your will for me? Thy will, not my will be done. I pray for the knowledge of your will and the power to carry it out. Baby steps. Um, repetition is the highest form of permanence in nature. The things that I do reading the promises, uh, reading the, the serenity prayer, sending in my 10th step, doing literature, all these little rituals that we, we our sponsors tell us to do in program, 
they build a foundation of recovery that we, it's that repetition, it's those rituals that we develop, keep us sober with the food. Let's see, do I wanna say anything else? Some things that have changed since program. I'm a lot happier. I'm, I'm, I'm within a normal weight range. I'd like to lose 15 pounds. Menopause has not been kind. Sorry, guys, you can go la, 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 la. I hear nothing, um, you know, but I'd, I'd like to lose 15 pounds, but I'm not going to stress over it, especially um, <laughs> with a recovering broken knee. I, um, I don't yo-yo. My weight has been pretty, it's been pretty stable since I got sober with the food. Um, you know, I'm, I remarried to a wonderful man. We've been married um, 17 years. You know, I, I am so much more successful now than, than per, prior to program. I used to go to work and I would think every day, I, I'm going to be fired. I'm going to be fired. I, I just know they're going to fire me. And I would clear my books out, slowly take them home. And then I wouldn't get fired. Okay, then I bring my books back to work. I mean, I did this my first couple of years of, of industry. And now I, I don't do that anymore. I don't, you know, I still get stressed, but I don't, I don't live in fear all the time. I used to be so fear driven. I don't, that doesn't happen anymore. I don't deal with depression. Thank goodness for medicine and a lot of program, a lot of program. Um, you know, I'm happy most of the time. I mean, I'm sure I go through periods where I get blue, but for the most part, I'm a pretty happy person. I have a lot of gratitude. Um, you know, I used to think because I'm an engineer or, or because I'm a codependent, I think I can fix anyone because I'm an engineer. I know I can fix anyone. That's what it was like before program. Since being in program, I've learned that I can't fix anyone. I'm not responsible for their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Um, fixing them is not what they want. You know, this is really hard because I think my you know, enlightening people is not my job, even though it's really hard as a parent because I want to enlighten my kids all over the place. Using the traditions in my life. I haven't talked much about the traditions, but I think it's if you really want to kick ass, boost your program, go to a workshop on using the traditions in your relationships. My friend Mike from Colorado and I have led many workshops on this and and we, we both, we take two different, very different approaches on this. But practicing the traditions in all my affairs, especially at work, in my marriage, and my friendships, has changed my life dramatically. And it's, it's, there's a lot less angst and a lot less, a lot fewer problems. And, um, you know, because I always have good intentions, but, you know, I think a lot of my pro problems before program were good intentions, good intentions gone awry you know, um, because I got into controlling people and controlling situations. So I think I've covered all I want to cover. Um, you know, when I, you know, living the steps, tools, and traditions, you know, reprogram my, reprogram, programs reprogram my brain from my, my original family of origin. And they were good people. You know, they were, I didn't go through a horrendous trauma. They were good people. They just had a really limited set of tools. And I had in program, I developed those tools. I tried everything before, you know, diet-wise before coming to program. OA was the last house on the block. What I didn't know is OA was also the best house on the block. It is the easier, softer way. And I am so grateful for all of you. Thank you for listening. And with that, I'll stop. Thank you so much, Tawana. Thank you.
Thank you for sharing your experience, strength and hope with us today. So now we will be transitioning into a question and answer segment. And I'd like to introduce Sim, who's going to be our moderator today. Hi, I'm Sim um, and I'm a compulsive eater and your moderator for today. Please continue to send your questions on the topic of the family afterward to me using the chat and we will try to get through as many questions as we can today. Our first question is, have you ever felt abandoned by your God higher power? What are your go-to tools to reconnect? What helps you firsthand when irritated, disconnected and discontent? Okay, so I'm going to take part A. Am I supposed to answer the question? Oh, okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure because maybe somebody else is going to be answering questions. I don't want to steal anybody's uh, highlight. So how do I reconnect my, with my higher power? I've never felt abandoned by my higher power. I've always known that it's me that's walked away. It's me that's disconnected. And, you know, and when I disconnect and start feeling that restless, irritable, and discontent, um, you know, one of the things I know is I need to reconnect with my OA peeps because I hear my higher power through my OA peeps. Like I said, I don't get the burning bush. I get my, I get messages from my higher power from just this, this, this intuition that comes that just says, you need to do this. And, you know, meditation or that quiet, having some kind of a quiet space, whether, you know, I, I practice um, kind of more of an active meditation. If I'm working on crafts and I get into the zone, that's very meditative for me. If I'm out hiking, that's very, or walking, that's very meditative for me. Um, and that's a time that I can um, get into that space where I can hear my higher power. You know, making, if I feel that restless, irritable, and discontent, I'm disconnected from my higher power and disconnected from people in general, you know, first and foremost, I talk to my sponsor. You know, you know, she'll ask me, you know, well, have you prayed about this, Tana? You know, what's going on? And, you know, when I tell her what's going on, well, have you prayed about it? And I always hate it when she asks that question. It's like, damn, of course I haven't prayed about it. <laughs> But, um, you know, praying about it. And then, you know, sometimes she'll give me a writing assignment. But the most important thing is I connect with my OA peeps, my, my OA friends who are strong in their recovery, because that's where I hear, you know, you know, when I was a kid, I always, you know, a young teen, I always heard this critical voice in my head. You have baptized, you know, you're so stupid. Nah, 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 nah. And what I, what I've learned through OA is to replace that critical voice that critical voice has gone away. And now what I hear is my sponsor. I hear my OA friends. I hear all the funny things they've said. And this started happening maybe after about 10 years of program. Like I said, I'm kind of slow at this, but eight to 10 years of program, I started to hear, instead of that critical voice in my head, I would hear them. How's that working for you, Tana? Ha ha ha, you know, or, you know, and that that is kind of, for me, that's part of my higher power is, you know, those voices coming into my head instead of the, you have fat thighs. How could you have such fat thighs? You know, I hope this answers your question. That's, that's my answer. Thank you, Tona. Our next question is, now that you have many years of experience, what are the key things you wish you had learned when you first joined the program? You know, I don't think there's any key things I would have learned when I first joined the program because I am so driven. It's like, you know, I was thinking 12 steps, 12 weeks, I'll graduate, out of here. You know, so I, when I dive into something, I, I work it really hard. One of the, perhaps one of the things that might have helped me is I didn't have to work so hard. It's, it's like, sure, you have to work through the steps. You have to do what your sponsor says. I didn't probably have to do it quite as obsessively as I did, 
but also let it happen. Um, you know, let it happen rather than trying to force it. But but the bottom line is, is we all arrive when we need to arrive, and you know, for me it was it was letting go a little bit more, letting go of you know, everything I attack has got you know or attempt has got teeth and claw marks all over it because I'm going to master this, and having a looser grip, probably I would I would have got, gotten things sooner, but you know, maybe not. I had to I had to go through what path I went through. That was just my that was my path. Um, thank you, Tona. Our next question is, um, my question is about my partner. I get so mad at him all the time. I feel that I'm on eggshells. I never know when I'm going to yell at him. I am abstinent a few months, but I'm ashamed of my behavior. It is not changing. I seem to be getting worse. I think for me, there's a couple things. One is when I put on my, my glasses and when I walk into a room, if I, if I see the negative, that's, that's what's, you know, if I put on my shit colored glasses, I'm going to see my partner's shit. If I put on, you know, maybe glasses with a little bit of, you know, sunshine, I'm going to see sunshine. So it, some of it's the attitude I go into the room and also it's how I respond to what my partner does. You know, I can, you know, there's that, it's the pause. If I can just pause before reacting, my instant response may be to yell or to judge. Maybe if I just take the pause and stop. Now, this has taken a long time and I still work on this. I was never a yeller. I was always the yell E, the one getting yelled at. But for me, taking the pause and not taking on my partner's anger was important for me and also I think that it's for some of these things it's helpful to seek outside help um, you know OA is about working the 12 steps and 12 traditions working the 12 uh, traditions may help once you go through the steps start working with your sponsor and working through each tradition as it applies to your relationships that helped me a lot a lot it helped it's kind of like a, a major fourth step on relationships so working the traditions on relationships is huge but if you're if you're early in your sobriety, the, I think the most important thing for is look at the glasses I'm putting on before I walk into the situation, doing the pause, and perhaps taking a step back and walk out, you know, walk out of the room, do something different. Um, you know, I don't have a lot of experience on this, so perhaps somebody else can can help. But that's that's what I have to say. Thank you, Tona. Um, our next question, we've got two kind of similar questions, so I'll just read the first one and then if it doesn't cover everything, I'll ask you the next bit. Um, thank you so much for sharing about your kids. Can you talk more about abstinence and raising a young family? Oh my gosh. You know what? how hard it is to live with three normal eaters and a husband who's a normal eater? Thank God I got abstinent before I had kids. Otherwise, it would have just been really ugly. But yeah, one of the things that's really hard is they'll leave a half-eaten goodie treat, sugary goodie treat out on the countertop. What is wrong with you? Nobody leaves a half-eaten goodie treat on the countertop. <laughs> you know, this is what am I, this is, these are thinking words, not speaking words. I've learned that. There's thinking words and there's speaking words. <laughs> so again, to the previous person, you know, 
with what what I'm going to say is a thinking word or is it a speaking word? Yelling is never a speaking word. That's not that's not a good way of handling it. At any rate, so what I what I do is their food is not my food. I've got my food, which is my my green light foods and some yellow light foods. Their food is red light food. That's not my food. That's my drug food. I you know they can have that, but if they leave it out in the countertop, it goes in the garbage can. I also want to say. Having cats is a benefit. Kitty litter is a tool. One of the things I learned from my first sponsor is if you're going to eat something that's not good, you mix it with used kitty litter and you put it in the garbage. Why do you, because I didn't have a garbage disposal, so I couldn't put it on the garbage disposal. I lived in, in like a 1910 house or whatever. So, you know, I learned that mixing with kitty litter, I'm not going to go back out and retrieve it. It's gone. No way. So kitty litter is a tool when you have kids. Um, you know, or mixing it with dirt, because you're probably not going to go out and eat dirt, you know, if you don't have a cat, but my, the concept of my food and their food. And one of the things that was really important for me is to not feel deprived, because if I feel deprived, those two dangerous words, F it, come out of my mouth. And that is the worst, those are the two worst words I can say. So I have my own abstinent goody treats, and they have their goody treats, and they are different. God forbid if they get into my goody treats, because there's going to be hell to pay. <laughs> you know? I'm, Submit joking. You know, my kids are just like, this is mama's treat. You guys have anything you want for goody treats. Mama only gets these treats. If I want to share, you know, then I start talking in the third person like Bob Dole. Then you know it's serious. You know, mama says this and mama has that. And mama, you know, <laughs> anyway, I'm I'm being weird now. Um, so you know, it's I think of I have my abstinent goody treats that I know I can have one of. Because if I have two, then it becomes a red light food and I can't do that. So I I'm very carefully guard my abstinent treats. So I have so I don't feel deprived. But their food, my red light foods, those are their treats. They don't get to sit around on the countertop. They get put in the pantry. Um, there's a limit to them. I don't talk about, I've never talked about dieting to my kids. They've never seen me with a thousand diets on the fridge like my mom had. They didn't hear me talk about feeling fat, blah, 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 blah. I've said a couple of times, oh, I'm feeling a little chubby. And my kid says, my oldest kid says, mom, you're just healthy. Look at how strong you are and how, how you've been able to do all these outdoor athletic things. Those legs are strong and healthy. And I'm thinking, oh, I've done a good job parenting. You know, I've, you know, when my kids junior or when my kid was in high school, my oldest kid with autism, her, her guidance counselor called me in and said, your, your daughter has the most healthy sense of self of any other high school freshman that I've ever seen. Good job, you know, and I'm just thinking, I have arrived. This is, I mean, this out of the blue, this was such a compliment. My kids did not see me in my disease. My kids have seen me abstinent, um, you know, so that I'm, I'm grateful for that. But just practicing my program and all my affairs is the most important thing I can do. Staying sober with the food, no matter what, is the most important thing I can do. Saying no when I need to. Um, no is a complete sentence. I do not have to back it up with no because blah, blah, blah. It's like, mommy, would you eat some of my blah, blah, blah? No, honey. Thank you. No. I don't have to go into why. When I go to kids' play dates, when to kids' play dates, they you know, have all kinds of stuff laid out, none of it which I could eat. Oh, Tana, would you like blah? No, I'm sorry. Thank you. And if people push me, I'm, well, why don't you have this? You know, blah. And I'll just tap my stomach and say, just doesn't agree with my system. You know, make it sound like I'm going to have diarrhea, you know, but I don't say that, of course. And I just, oh, you know, it just doesn't agree with my system and I pack, pat my gut. And this is, this happens a lot at work too, by the way, where they have all this 
goody treats brought in it. Now it just, you know, recreational sugar just doesn't agree with my gut. And uh, so that helps. That's one of my, I guess, phrases that gets me out of eating. And people say, oh, you're so good. You know, you don't eat sugar, blah, blah, blah. No, it just doesn't agree with my system. And most people will know after you pat your gut not to ask more questions. <laughs> anyway, I hope that helps. Thank you, Tona. Um, so this question is a little bit different then. You seem so, your life seems so busy. How do you find balance with work and family and program? I get overwhelmed every day. So many people pulling at me in different directions. Oh my gosh. Well, balance, this is something that, you know, I'm seeking to, to get. I work in a high pressure, high visibility, technical job. I work any, I typically work 50, 55 hours a week, sometimes up to 70 hours a week never 40, um, you know, so that is hard. When I had kids, sometimes, especially when I was a single parent of three special needs kids, I'd get up, get them off to school. I'd work my ass off until they were done. You know, they'd, they'd bring them home, feed them, put them to bed. Sometimes I had to work longer hours, you know, get out and, you know, shovel snow on the deck, try to do something to get exercise and always, always, always. I went to my OA meeting, always. I always made sure I contacted my sponsor and I stayed, you know, so it, I do better when I'm juggling a lot of things. My life is not what you call well-balanced right now because I need to do more art. Art and engineering balance me. I, if I do my art, I get great engineering ideas. If I do engineering, I great, get great art ideas. If I do both and keep that balanced, I have an easier time staying sober with the food. Um, but the most important thing, no matter what, is I get to my OA meetings. My OA program is number one. If, I, if OA is number one, everything else balances out, even though I live a crazy-ass life. I do a lot of service. Um, my, my job is crazy. My kids are now in college, so it's, I, you know, I don't have small kids at home anymore. They're now all um, at least a junior, sophomore junior in college. So I'm not the best example for balance, but the most important thing for me is to stay sober with the food and work my program. Everything else will fall into place. That's my answer. Thank you, Tona. Um, next question, you mentioned recovery coins. What do you do every day to build up those recovery calls? Must be coins maybe. Um, there's a variety of things I do. You know, I almost always without fail, because sometimes I forget, text my 10th step to my sponsor. You know, um, if I'm struggling, Okay, God help, you know, um, having literature available, if I'm not, you know, doing some bit of service, it's, it looks different for me now because I've been programmed for many years. And so I don't have to, I, I, I kind of went from actively working the program and doing writing assignments, doing you know, all this stuff that my sponsor told me to do. Now it's more living the program. You know, I live the program. I live the steps. I live the traditions. Got to work on the concepts now. They're still, I'm still in learning, learning on the concepts, but I live the program. And, you know, whether that be, you know, practicing the traditions at work, you know, there are, there are the traditions that have helped me so much. And, you know, and I follow my face all the time. I make mistakes, but the good news is, is if I make a mistake, I make an amends. I make an immediate amends as soon as I realize it. And that sure is a lot easier than waiting until, you know, 10 years later, and when you've got to make a real amends, like a ninth step, eight step. So it's, 
early in program, it was calling people every day. It was uh, being sober with the food. It was writing my food down and calling it in. It was going to at least three meetings a week. Um, it was writing. It was, you know, using all the tools. I mean, I fanatically did all that, <clears throat> you know, being involved in service. And now it's more living the steps, living the traditions. And in, after, after time, it becomes infused into your DNA, so to speak. And you just, you just do it. That's how you, that's how you operate in life. And if I struggle, okay, God, what do I need to do? You know, one of the first things I do is I text one of my OA buddies. That really helps. If I can, you know, if it's really bad, I'll make a phone call. Then you know, it's really bad. You know, that 5,000 pound phone or, you know, 5,000 kilogram phone, if we're in the metric system, <laughs> you know, um, I hope that helps a little bit. Thank you, Tona. Uh, it's nearly time to end our question and answer session. We have five minutes left if anyone has any more questions uh, before I've got. Um, what mistakes have you made in your journey that have been the best learning experience? Boy, that's a hard one. What mistakes have I made in my journey that have been the best learning experiences? Well, I'm perfect. I don't make mistakes. Just kidding. <laughs> I make so many mistakes. Um, I wouldn't call them mistakes. I call them learning experiences, number one. I mean, you know, I make mistakes all the time. I don't know if there's any best mistakes. The, the most important thing is that I just keep coming back, that I don't give up. Yeah, I guess my, my approach has always been, you know, I haven't made quote mistakes and serious makes mistakes in recovery. I mean, things like believing a, a, you know, a way to measure food plan is the only way to go, you know, believing in absolutes. This is the only way you can do it. That has held me back. And when I, when I've given up on my way of doing things, because whenever it's, whenever I stick to, it's got to be my way rather than God's way. I don't care what the situation is. I tend to fall on my face and having the ability to take a step back, listen to my sponsor and say, okay, let's, let's, let's remove the claws and the teeth from this, whatever this situation is, step back. Okay, God, come in and take over because I'm messing stuff up big time. So I would say thinking that I have the answers for myself or for any other person would be one of the biggest mistakes. And I, it's, I made that so many times in so many ways, but, but learning, learning that there is a different way that my family of origin way of doing things, although what was really, one of the things that was really hard is I came from a pretty good family. So it was, I didn't have horrendous experiences, um, you know, from my family of origin. So thinking that, well, I've always been, you know, raised in a good family and I've got a good head on my shoulders and I've got the answers. That has probably been the biggest detriment to me. And learning that there is a different way. It's it's not my way or the highway. It's God's way and thy will be done. Thank you. And um, how do you stay consistent? How do I stay consistent? You know, when our when we're new in program, our sponsor gives us a lot of things to do. It's making again, it's all those little habits. It's remembering to say the serenity prayer. It's having little reminders of sticky notes. You know, um, for years I had the Q-tip tied to my 
my work computer. People thought I was weird. Why do you have a, a Q-tip tied your tie, you know, tape your work computer? That's bizarre. Quit taking it personally. I said that helps me a lot. You know, and my they still thought I was weird, but you know, hey, she's got a Q-tip on her computer. But these little reminders, these little baby steps, and just keep, you know, again, the most permanent thing in nature is repetition. Repetition, repetition, repetition. You know, it becomes a habit and just doing it every single day. And even if you don't feel like doing it. There's days that I don't feel like texting my sponsor. Well, then the next day I got to text two days worth of stuff. It's persistence. Persistence, when it's pig-headed stubbornness, that's, that's you know, one of those character defects. But if you can turn it into persistence and perseverance, it's a, it's a character asset. And, and just do it. You know, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. If I, if I send my sponsor a crappy 10th step, at least I sent it. If I did a crappy third step of turning, turning my will and my life over to care of God, well, at least I did it. You know, it may, may be uglier than homemade sin, but at least I did it. So it's just doing, just, just do it no matter what. If it's ugly, do it anyway. We, we all, it's kind of like doing my best. My best is going to look different from day to day. But if I always do my best, I live without regrets. I hope that sort of answered it. Thank you. Um, it's now 10 minutes to the hour and our Q&A time has come to an end. Thank you, Tona. Um, I'll now hand the meeting back to our chairperson, Chris W. Thanks so much, Sim. And thank you again, Tona. Uh, our seventh tradition. According to our seventh tradition, we are fully self-supporting through our own contributions. As we have now moved to virtual meetings, it is important that we continue to be fully self-supporting this allows Overeaters Anonymous to continue to carry the message to those who still suffer. You are able to send your donations through our website at www.ad4l.info. For those of you able to see the Zoom chat, the link will also be posted there. Thank you all for your support. It is appreciated. Uh, our next meeting, uh, a reminder that a Design for Living Big Book OA is a daily meeting. We are based out of Melbourne, Australia. The recording from today's workshop will be available on our website, where you can also find out about other upcoming events and speakers. Visit our website again at www.ad4l.info. Our next monthly speaking, speaker series will be held on Sunday, February 11, 7.30 to 9 a.m. We hope to see you there. So in closing, I would like to thank you all for the, your service in coming here today. By following the 12 steps, attending meetings regularly and using the OA tools, we are changing our lives. You, you will find hope and encouragement in Overeaters Anonymous. To the newcomer, we suggest attending at least six different meetings to learn the many ways OA can help you. The opinions expressed here today are those of the individual members and do not represent OA as a whole. Please remember our commitment to honour each other's anonymity. What you hear here, whom you see here, when you leave here, let it stay here. Let us all reach out by phone or email to newcomers, returning members and to each other. Together, we get better. To close the meeting, will Richard please unmute and read the Ninth Step Promises? Thank you.
Hi, I'm Richard. I'm a real. Can you hear me? Hi, I'm Richard. I'm a real compulsive overeater. The promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. 